You're listening to WCT.FM, talk radio like no other. God, I love the station. Good morning, good evening, wherever you may be. You're on the nation, around the world. You're listening to The Supernatural Realm on WCET.FM. We're also on LNM Radio Network at www.latenightinthemidlands.com. Also, WCET 101.7 FM in Columbia, South Carolina. And our archives can be found on uh, the Paranormal Radio app, Spotify, Podbean, Podkicker, Acast, Podcast Player, Podcast Addict, uh, iTunes, uh, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Pocket Cast, and most recently, iHeartRadio. So, with all that said, you can find us just about anywhere. <laughs> just about. <laughs> so, uh, Chippy, you want you there? Chippy. Uh, oh, yeah, I wouldn't miss this one for the world, brother. Boy, another phenomenal guest. That is the magic of Tim Roxbury, the great Tim Roxbury, I should say. And what a day we have. What a phenomenal guest today. Uh, might as well tell him who that is. So I'm I'm going to do that. Um, our honored guest today is Dennis Stone. And boy, we love this guy. He is the president of America's Stonehenge. And that's cool. I mean, Stonehenge is a cool thing to talk about in the first place. America Stonehenge is even cooler, especially if you live in America, you know. <laughs> and Stonehenge, apart from, you know, the way my wife describes people that smoke too much weed too too often, you know, uh, well, that's not the context of today's Stonehenge, of course. Uh, but Dennis Stone, the president of America Stonehenge in beautiful Salem, New Hampshire, now, Dennis Stone graduated from Daniel Webster College in 1977 with a degree in aviation management. He was a full-time commercial pilot for over 35 years before his retirement in 2016. Retirement, that's on my bucket list, I will say there you that. Go. <laughs> America Stonehenge was open to the public in 1958. Hey, so was I, technically speaking. So I'm just as old as the publicly open America Stonehenge. It was opened by Dennis's father, Robert Stone. Now, Dennis has been uh, involved with America Stonehenge for most of his life. He's always had a fascination with archaeology and archaeoastronomy. Since retiring, Dennis has found many serpentine walls and spirit windows throughout the site, among other new discoveries. He's taken numerous courses and traveled extensively to ancient sites, both in the United States and internationally. His family includes his wife, Pat, his son, Kelsey, and his daughter-in-law, Catherine. And uh, Dennis's hobbies include traveling, boating, and classic cars. So, you know, I'll be asking him about classic cars at some point. <laughs> anyway, uh, a great honor to have the 
fabulous. Dennis Stone is our honored guest today here on Supernatural Realm. So we welcome Dennis, and I'm going to turn it over to Timmy for the official welcome and the first questions of the day. Welcome to the show, Dennis. Great to have you, finally. Uh, we had to reschedule because of weather on Tuesday, and uh, we brought you back today. It's great uh, and honor to have you here. Welcome. Well, thank you very much, uh, Tim. It's, uh, thank you very much for having me on this evening. It's a pleasure for me also. How did you I, – I know you were – you grew up around Stonehenge, but did you always have a fascination with ancient civilizations uh, as a youngster? Uh, yeah, I think it runs in the family, uh, certainly in the blood. And uh, my dad had it with it in him uh, his whole life, basically. Um, so, yeah, I was always interested in the past, you know, particularly the mysterious past. And uh, so it's been something I've been fascinated by. And, you know, I've been around it my whole life. I haven't known anything differently. But uh, ancient sites, you know, megalithic ruins, uh, and a lot of the ancient sites in America, too, just fascinate me, even to this day. So uh, we're involved with this for, uh, oh gosh, uh, almost seven decades now. Wow. Have you been to other sites throughout the world, uh, such as uh, Indian yeah. towns and places like that? Yeah, we try to travel as much as possible. Um <clears throat> been to Stonehenge several times, but they're... You know, the sites all over Western Europe that are called megalithic sites are about 50,000 of them. And um, I, back in the early 80s, when I began my flying career, um, my dad and I went over to uh, England and Ireland and also to uh, Scotland and Wales. And we saw a lot of the megalithic sites there. And we went over several times. And we went to Mexico and visited some of the ruins down there, too. And then when I met my wife uh, back in the uh, probably, uh, I guess, 1984, I should remember that. Uh, we started traveling a lot. You know? <laughs> I got to remember that. You know, I can't forget that. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. That's one of those things, a doghouse or memory. Take your pick. Yeah. Memory yeah. always wins. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, anniversaries. I got to remember those. But, mm -hmm. yeah, so we would travel a lot, too. And then my son was born in 89. We took him and traveled a lot with him. We we had him in preschool, and we decided to homeschool him just so we could go more, you know. And we went a lot of a lot of different places, and usually included an ancient site, you know, with a vacation. So that made it kind of interesting and, sure. you know, educational and fun too at the same time. Right? Yeah. <clears throat> what's, what's I mean, that, that is a phenomenal education, if I may say so myself. Yeah. What's What's some of the history of your site, and how far back were you able to date it too? Right. Well, the site's uh, it's about a 110-acre site. We're located in southern New Hampshire, uh, about 40 miles north of Boston, and we're about 20 miles from the ocean. Uh, the hill, uh, about 110 acres. My dad first uh, heard about it on the radio show, just like we're talking right now, and he got involved with it um, back in 1955. And eventually, uh, he opened it up, as you mentioned, in 1958, near about 20 acres of land that he initially purchased. And then over the uh, next couple of decades, he was able to buy the entire hill to protect it from, you know, housing development and that kind of thing, which is ah, which is good you. because we have walls and we have astronomical alignments. It would be pretty bad today to be looking at the winter solstice sunset and seeing a oh, house sure. right there. Yeah, know? or a you strip know? mall, even worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, it was good on his part. It was really, really, really good that he did that, you know, back in the, you know, early uh, six, late 50s, early 60s, you know, and even into the 70s, he bought his last piece of property. But um, it's, the site is, uh, we think, a ceremonial center. We don't think it was a living place. And what we call the main site is about one acre where most of the stone ruins are located. 
Um, the ruins consist of chambers you can walk into with great big stone roofs. Um, there's a plaza area, a courtyard area. There's a ramp that overlooks a big table we call the sacrificial table. It's about a 9,000-pound stone, shaped like a bell, kind of like a bell shape, with a trapezoidal groove carved on the top surface of it. And it sits on four legs, so that's one of the main features of the site. But there are some very large underground chambers you can actually stand up and walk right through them. We don't think they were living like the Flintstones kind of places. I think this is more ceremonial, and it looks a lot like the uh, Western megalithic type, you know, stone ruins. And most of those are tombs, temples, and monuments. The people over in Europe would live in wood hide or or, um, bark homes, basically, something perishable, you know, something that won't be around today. But they made their temples and the tombs and monuments out of stone, which, you know, is almost everlasting, you know, something very permanent. So it's on top of a hill. <clears throat> a lot of the ancient sites are built up high, you know, closer to the heavens. And um, we think the site's not only uh, possible use of those functions like a tomb, temple, and monument, but astronomically it aligns with the sun, moon, and stars. So it's kind of a calendar site. And surrounding the main site is the, the other hundred and about nine acres of land. And that consists of all these very, very interesting walls that go all over the place, usually farmer's walls in the Northeast. In New England, we have about 240,000 miles of walls, the most of anywhere on the earth. And that was brought to my attention only a couple of years ago from another radio show. And a a lady that does the show, I've been on her show, she mentioned, um, and she's written about it, the number of miles of walls in New England. You can go from here to the moon. And uh, I've been to Ireland, and I thought they had a lot of walls, but we we actually have more walls than them. But these wow. walls are historic walls, but we think we have prehistoric walls. They look different. And the walls are not really linear. You know, they don't run straight. They run in curves, and they usually go from a big glacial boulder, and they'll run, in, run from that boulder to another boulder, and then to another boulder, kind of zigzagging across the landscape. Farmers or professional wall builders would have used one boulder and ran the wall straight, you know, and used it as a property line, maybe a stock fence for animals, or maybe even a field clearing where you clean up the rocks from a field and you make a wall. But these walls contain windows, uh, what we call portals. They contain uh, little stone niches, like little chambers, and they contain the astronomical alignments. And the astronomical alignments look like very, very large arrowheads stood up in the wall. So these walls are not your typical New England farm walls. In fact, the area on top of the hill is is not arable. It's very, very thin soil. It's very poor soil, full of rocks. The whole hilltop still covered with rocks. So it wasn't an area where somebody was, uh, you know, plowing and, you know, growing crops. Uh, you know, some sheep could have grazed on the side of the hill, something like that, but it's not really a farm. So the site, when you it has a complete underground network of storm drains, so whoever built the main site engineered a complete network of 12 underground drains. These drains are actually uh, have flat cap stones on top, and they run up to 75 feet, and they still work today to keep the site dry. Um, so the whole site was kind of engineered. It was built very carefully, and then the walls around it, as my dad, he died about 10 years ago. Towards the end of his life, he was getting out to look at the walls, and I, would, I was still flying, and he would tell me, you know, I think these walls are as important as the main site. They have so many different features. But only about three years ago, he discovered features that he didn't even see. And you mentioned them earlier, uh, the serpentine walls, the, mm-hmm. the stone portals, and we found many huge, large slabs of stone that were quarried. And these are part of the bedrock. They were able to separate the bedrock because the bedrock appears granite and it's foliated. It does come up in layers, but they were able to separate it carefully. And, and these stones would weigh several tons and they would prop them up with another, what we call a field stone, kind of a rounded stone left by glaciers. Mm-hmm. And then they would start working the edge of it. 
and they would shape the stone, address it using a technique called percussion flaking. So on a scale, large scale, it was like making an arrowhead, like napping an arrowhead, taking off little flakes of stone and shaping it. And this has been demonstrated. And even the um, New Hampshire state archaeologist, he's still alive but retired now, back in the 80s, he verified that it was like making a ton and a half or several ton arrowhead, the same Stone Age technology used to shape. And these stones were abandoned out there. There's about 33 of them all over the hill, about up to 1,000 feet from the main site. And just in the last three years since I retired, we found about 20 of those, uh, 33. And we started thinking, my gosh, they must have had a much bigger plan for the site. It wasn't that they completed it and then they used it and eventually it was abandoned. It looks like they had a grand plan for this thing and then they walked away from it. I mean, even more of a mystery. Why did they do that? Why were they, you know, what rushed them out of here? So, so we found a lot of things just in the last few years up there. Wow. Yeah, glad it wasn't one of those prehistoric strip malls, you know, because that would have been. Oh, right, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) There's not a nail salon in the world that can keep up with America's Stonehenge. (laughs) It's interesting, uh, Dennis, you mentioned about portals. Our our friend Andrew Collins uh, has been to Galepe Tempe. He's been to Separate Mount. He's been to to, uh, Stonehenge and various locations throughout the world and he he says that there's uh portals at a lot of those locations um do you feel the energy shift um at your site well a lot of people do yeah a lot of people sensitive to that say it's an energy there um uh it's like a vortex you know Mm -hmm. the sites a lot of people think that the ancient sites around the world the megalithic sites are built on you know, uh, power spots of the earth and they're like, uh, to generate that energy, you know, mm-hmm. um, we think our sites on a ley line, you know, people that believe in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually Andrew Collins is a friend of mine. He's been to our site. I was just <laughs> communicating <laughs> with him just recently. Nice. Wow. Uh, yeah. He's a good guy. Uh, I've done a couple of radio shows with him and, uh, mm-hmm. but he's been over, he's going to come back. Uh, he was there with Hugh Newman and Dr. Little wow. uh, about wow. four years oh, ago. Yeah, Greg, Greg has been on here too, along with oh. Andrew. Yeah, so they're oh, friends, yeah. friends of ours too. See? Yeah, so we Good can hang out. That's a, that's a, a beautiful thing. Small, small world. <laughs> yeah, and and you know they also mentioned as long as we're talking about them and how it relates to your site, uh, uh, a couple of brief questions for you. One, you mentioned the stone flaking and and uh, their latest project, which is uh, Denisovan Origins, mm-hmm. which is this prehistoric culture that we're just finding out about that could have existed along with neanderthals around that time period but they were like super smart all all, almost autistic in in nature you know they worked with the stone flaking type of tool making and that's what made them stand out as opposed to other uh neanderthal groups if you will um and so you know when you talk about the stone flaking that you were just uh, just talking about you know, I mean, that could that could date even further along than we think. So I guess the fair question would be to segue into uh, how you figure out methods of, of dating for uh, this property, uh, for America's Stonehenge, if you use carbon dating or if you have, if there is a, a newer method, because our understanding of carbon dating is there, there is a margin of error, I guess. There's plus or minus a significant amount. Um, and is there any good estimation of, of how far this dates back? 
Oh, yes. And I, I apologize. I meant to answer that during my description of the site, but we believe the site's about 4,000 years old. And we did start carbon dating it back in 1966. And we ran about 12 different carbon datings until the 1990s. And we'll do it again if we need to. You know, if we find the material, we can send it out and have it dated. Um, but yeah, there's, um, they've improved radiocarbon dating. There's mass accelerometer spectrometry. And we've had three samples done by that method. And a physicist described that as we're not measuring the radioactivity. We're actually counting atoms. And we need like, I think they need like one, two thousandths is the mass to, to date. So you don't have to destroy as much of the, the object, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it's more accurate, I guess. Yeah. So um, 4,000 years seems to be the date of the site. Um, it could be older than that. Uh, we actually have one other dating that was out near what we call the North Stone. The stone aligns with Polaris today and Thuban about 4,000 years ago. And they were doing some shovel test pit study across the hilltop in the 1990s. And it looked like it was a fire pit. And they, and I think it was. And they sent the material the, in to have it dated. And they did use that mass test. And it was done by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute down in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Oh, nice. And I believe, yeah, we did three with them, I think. And we did the rest with Geochrome Laboratories out of Cambridge, Mass. And that company's since moved uh, a little bit further north in Massachusetts, I think, to a town of Blow, Mass, I think. Wow. But um, that dated to about 7,400 years, plus or minus, I think, 200 years. So it was middle archaic time period. And it shows human activity on top of the hilltop possibly around that time because people say if the site's 4,000 years old were any people you know who was around here at that time yeah 2000 people, bc yeah. yeah 2000 bc and well, actually it, it begs the question and i don't mean to interrupt but because oh, we're no, mentioning yeah. dr gregory l little also um mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. he's worked a lot with uh native american mounds around uh, the united states especially uh, but if it goes back around, let's say, 2000 B.C., would there be Native Americans there? I know that people ask you all the time, and I don't know if you know the answer for sure. Don't blame me if you don't. They speculate <laughs> if this might have been like a Irish monks or something or Native Americans or something that could be a complete surprise to us or, all. Or, or tied to the Denisovans <laughs> somehow. Yeah, well, I, well, not four thousand years though. Uh, right. Denisovans, I think, most recently ended around ten thousand mm-hmm. years. But there were offshoots of Denisovans and Neanderthals, even in modern Homo sapiens, that yeah. could have been around four thousand years ago. I know I wasn't. I feel old, but you know, not quite that old. <laughs> <laughs> well, they could ca- maybe they can carbon date you, but uh, yeah, but I, well, you know, sure. <laughs> I don't think they want to touch me under any circumstances. <laughs> well, we'll get sure the truth somehow, though. <laughs> yeah, they can count my atoms, I suppose. That would be an interesting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but well, um, the Denisovans. You know, that's actually funny because they found, I guess it was in a Russian cave, you know, they, they right. found the first evidence of that. And it was named after a guy named Dennis, which I thought was right. pretty cool. You know? <laughs> that's right. That's my name. That's your name, too. <laughs> my, yeah. Yeah. Maybe so it was you go, they you know? named him after, you know. Yeah. Not, not yeah. to say you're that old either, of course, but you know, well, that uh, would be pretty cool. You know? <laughs> we don't know until we test, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, look, Dennis for divisive stone for Stonehenge. And there you yeah. go. There I mean, go. the name is complete now. So, you know, be a connection there. You never know. Yeah. I'm sure you get asked to speculate all the time, but, it, you know, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. I, you know, and if you know or not or, or have a theory, 
you know, we'd love to entertain. Or you, if you just don't go there and you want facts, 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 that's good, too. Um, do no, you have we, any speculation? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, um, there are inscriptions that have been found, not at, only at America Stonehenge, but actually from North America right through Central and South America, East Coast to West Coast. And these inscriptions seem to be um, uh, old world inscriptions, you know, uh, Phoenician, Libyan, and Celtic, just for a couple wow. of them, you know, that have been found uh, at our site and elsewhere. Um, and there are place names all over New England that are not only Native American with a certain meaning, like Lake Memphis, up in Vermont, Mount Monadnock in New Hampshire, you know, Amistad River, Merrimack. But not, and the Native American word would have a meaning behind it, you know, like Amistad River, I think means falls, you know, the falls, you know, the waterfalls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Merrimack, I think the Merrimack River, I think it means uh, deep river of fish. I think I'd have to double check out. But uh, Dr. Barry Fell from Harvard University, who first visited our site in 1975, he died in 1994, and mm-hmm. he was at he was from New Zealand, went to school in England, and then he ended up at Harvard University. He wrote America, BC, Bronze Age America, and uh, Saga America, those three books. Wow. And he had a group called the Epigraphic Society. They had over 1,200 members, and they investigated, you know, petroglyphs or markings on stone all across the Americas and compared them to Old World, both uh, going across the Pacific Ocean and going across the Atlantic Ocean. <clears throat> and at our particular site, Libyan, Celtic, and Phoenician, he identified it. He said they actually came out of Spain and Portugal. They were Iberic or Iberian because of the style of writing. And he felt that was a ju- jumping off point and also a... Uh, kind of a, it was a melting pot of cultures there. We know the Celts were there, the Phoenicians were in Spain and Portugal. I've been to Spain before, not to Portugal, but yeah, those cultures were there. And he says that they, uh, actually there are names of towns that are Phoenician there and Celtic and, and Libyan, and they would have jumped off to the Americas from there. And, um, you know, so, but the place names again is list upon list of place names that are both Celtic and also um, uh, Algonquin, the same word with the same meaning behind it. Wow. Yeah, so there's place names, there's um, the stone structures, there's the inscriptions, and then there's a lot of Native Americans like the Cherokee. They say their ancestors came across the, the basically the Atlantic Ocean, and some of the members of the tribe had like, you know, blue eyes, some had fair skin, almost like a mixing of races. And Verrazano, who came over uh, for King, uh, what was it, King Francis the first of France. Francis, he was Italian. Right? Came, mm-hmm. Yeah, so yep. he came over, you know, and he, his brother was a map maker, but he went out to the Outer Banks. He went up by Chesapeake Bay and Delaware Bay and then into New York right. Harbor where the Verrazano narrows bridges. Yeah, you know, and he was looking for that Northwest Passage, but he didn't find it. And then he ends up in Narragansett Bay, Rhode Island, and a, and a Native American came out as a harbor pilot almost and guided him in. And his name was Magnus, you know, and so Verrazano <laughs> said these people were quite tall, much taller than him. Uh, some of the members of the family of the Native Americans had very fair skin, fairer than his, and some had blue eyes and light-colored hair. And then Roger Williams, 90 years later, you know, the founder of Rhode Island was with the Narragansett and said the same thing, same kind of testimony. Huh. So there's a lot of examples of Native Americans that may have come in contact with old world people. I know some people don't like to talk about that because of political, you know, the political hair and everything. But if these are facts, these are facts, you know, right. they yeah. shouldn't, you know, you know, if that's the truth. Yeah, if the, it is, you know. Well, there, there yeah. is such a thing as facts, you know, at least that's my understanding of facts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, regardless of the political climate, you know, facts exist. But the Phoenicians, you know, for, for the listeners who may not know, are credited for the alphabet. Not our alphabet right. as much as the alphabet, you know, and that goes back. Yeah. It, it ties into both 
because of Spain and the Phoenicians, there's also a link. If you ask uh, Greg Little again, see, I mean, we'll be here Tuesday. I'd love to be have been a fly on that wall, but you know yeah. you can tie the Native Americans in to Spain. You know, there's a lot of mm-hmm. travel back in the day that you know before Magellan and all that. I mean, like four thousand years ago, from between Spain and what ultimately became described as Native Americans, uh, largely South America, from Spain to South America and northward, uh, and. It makes a lot of sense that, you know, I mean, the Libyan, well, that's fascinating, but the Phoenicians, uh, Native Americans, um, it all makes sense, you know. I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, based on, you know, talking talking to Greg and, and Andrew about all that stuff, that's, that's what, you know, how we got a better understanding of ancient civilizations and, and uh, prehistoric civilizations also. But it really makes a lot of sense, you know, mm-hmm. and it's fascinating because there's not that much speculation about, you know, pre-Columbus America. And, and right. this kind of right. hits the nail on the head. So it makes it even more of phenomenal interest to, to people that are uh, deeply entrenched in history or archaeology. You know, to take a trip on to <laughs> Salem, New Hampshire and see America's Stonehenge, you know. So that, yeah. well, you know, uh, you, you, I was going to say, sixty years ago, uh, they hadn't, you know, discovered. They were working on uh, up in Newfoundland to look for the Vikings, you know, where they landed. And, mm-hmm. and in 1959, people could still argue one way or the other and say, yes, I think the Vikings made it here for sure to the New World, or no, I think it's just, you know, it's just myth. It's not legend, you know. It's just mm-hmm. fable. Mm-hmm. But by 1960, they actually proved, you know, Alonso Meadow was a Viking settlement. And just I think two years ago, they found Point Rosie. Down in uh, southern uh, Newfoundland, 400 miles south of uh, Alonso Meadow, is another Viking settlement. So uh, you could be arguing, man. I think that's where we kind of stand with the Phoenician living in Celtic thing. There's some evidence suggesting it, but it's not conclusive because you have people on both sides arguing one way or the other, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, sure. So oh, yeah. yeah. It wasn't <clears throat> long ago they had a show <clears throat> about Stonehenge around the world. And I, I believe America's Stonehenge in Salem, New Hampshire, was mentioned in that. A lot of talk about Druids in that particular mm-hmm. one, which kind of threw me off because, you know, like you and, and you know, Phoenicians and, and Celtics and Libyans sound, sounds closer to the mark, at least on, on this one. Um, but yeah, the Druids was, uh, uh, in that particular documentary, you know, I'm not oh, saying was it was a great documentary. It was yeah. just a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> I may have missed that one. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, you didn't really miss much. Although, you know, they, <laughs> it kind of threw me off a little, you know, because they saw similarities to druids and, and all these different Stonehenges where that's I that first time I'd ever heard that, you know. Anybody ever brought druids up to you? Yeah, they do. Yeah, I mean, we have people that are neo-druids, too, that come to our place, just like they do at Stonehenge, you know, on the solstices and other times of the year. Um, but they're just part of the part of the ancient Celtic, you know, they're the, like the wise men or the learned ones, you know, with the, mm-hmm. but I think they're around a little bit later, you know, the Celts go back and I, for some reason they put the Druid, you know, when they actually a Druid is recognized as a, a later date, not, you know, not yeah, sometime in the 80, really yeah, not, not in the BC years, but in more than the AD year. And they, yeah, I think so. Like the men yeah, with the, the King Arthur yeah. stuff, you know, especially yeah, yeah. In England, which is, 
you know, I, I mean, um, pretty significant uh, uh, in in time following uh, the BCs, you know. And if we're going back mm -hmm. two thousand years BC, you know, give mm -hmm. or take a, a couple of hundred years, like you said, that's still significant and a, a well, lot yeah. earlier than the, the Druids would be credited for. Yeah. yeah, they uh, they actually uh, not only dated the site using Radio Cabin 14 at our site, um, and the oldest date in the main site, that one-acre area, was about 2000 B.C., as you mentioned. But um, And that was 1971. They actually were excavating a, a structure called the Chamber in Ruins. It has about a 7,000-pound roof slab that has collapsed into the structure, wow. and it has a 1,000-pound lintel stone that would have been over the doorway that collapsed at the same time. And that chamber actually uh, yielded three radiocarbon datings and three inscriptions. Uh, and as I mentioned, the Phoenician and the Libyan and one other stone that had a design on it. The uh, Celtic was found in a different place about 20 feet away from that structure. That structure actually is kind of a trapezoidal floor plan. And I know in England, some of the ancient structures have a trapezoid floor plan, too. Mm -hmm. And I was in France in Karnak with my wife, and we were riding bikes in the 80s. We didn't have cell phones, and we were on bicycles. We stayed there for a few days. We rented the bikes at the uh, railroad station, and we stayed at a hotel there. But uh, I, was, I saw a sign, and she was ahead of me, and I said, hey, slow down. There's a, I want to take a left here. And she didn't hear me, I guess, and I took a left. And I went in, and it was kind of a big hedge, and I, I couldn't really see where I was going or what was over there. But I went down the, that road a little ways, and all of a sudden I came to a chamber. It looked just like our chamber in ruins, except the roof was still intact, you know. And I'm like, oh, my oh. God, it looked just like our structure, the same basic wow. shape. She, I didn't see her for another three hours. She, we, she was, when she saw me later that evening, she was so, she was so fit to be had on that. She, <laughs> you know, she was pretty upset yeah. about the whole thing. No, I, yeah, for three hours. My wife always <laughs> says I don't listen to her either. So, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I get that, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I had good time, and that was kind of not, not so good. But uh, yeah, she got over it after a few years, you know. I think, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think she did. I don't know. Yeah. But no, that's anyway, about but... the average length of uh, forgiveness. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <after> some years. <laughs> yeah. Well, she still reminds me of it, though. Even today, yeah, it was, course. oh, my God, 35, 35 years ago. Yeah. But uh, that chamber looked just like our chamber, you know. Uh, there are so many resemblances to structures. And uh, and by the way, the megalithic sites are not in just Western Europe. I mean, Andrew talked about Gobekli Tepe and Turkey. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Russia and the Ural Mountains has structures that look just right. like some of the ones right around our, our area. We have uh, probably a dozen structures within about a 10-mile area of our site. And some of the chambers, like one in Wyndham, New Hampshire, looks just like one over in the Ural Mountains. And there are 3,500 of them in the Ural Mountains, megalithic structures. But over there, they think they're ancient. Over here, mainstream archaeologists, scholars, historians say, oh, these things shouldn't exist. So they're probably root cellars built 200 years ago. And you look <laughs> at the chamber in Wyndham, and I show them the one of the chambers over in, in the Ural Mountains, and people go, well, it's the same structure, the roof slab, a space, a lintel, and a big stone in front of the entranceway that could have been a blocking stone, or it could have been a monolith, you know, that they both, everybody thinks it's the same picture. And I'd be like, no, this one's seven miles away, that one's 7,000 miles away. And over there, they consider them, over there, they assume that, that they're ancient, you know, but over here, you know, mainstream has... All these things are only built 200 years ago. Used as root cells to keep vegetables cold, you know. So there's a different mindset, you know, a different mindset oh, on both right. sides of the ocean. Oh you know? yeah, you know? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, yeah. ancient history, you know, here and there are two completely different thoughts. 
yeah. And, and with the, 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 the whole life thing, you know, yes, they remember, I, you know, and it's a commonplace to say, no, no, you have the memory of an elephant when it comes to arguments. I didn't say you looked fat in that dress, honey. You know, <laughs> <laughs> talking about the brain, not the body. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Uh, Timmy, my brother. Uh, I'm um, I, I was wondering, you've probably been asked this question lots before, but have there ever been any skulls or bones found at the site? Yeah, the, well, we have found a couple. Yeah, they're not too many. Um, we've only excavated since 1937. If you put all the excavations together, we've probably excavated about one less than 1% of the hilltop, you know, so we haven't looked at the other 99%, but yes, a couple of bones have uh, come out of the site. One of them was found in a chamber. It's a satellite remote mm. chamber from the site. It's about 300 feet from the main site. It's called the watch house. And they found a bone and a stone, both with drill marks in it back in 1959. We think wow. they're pendants, you know, pendants like used for drill. Oh, and the bone okay. was about maybe a little over about an inch and a half long. We have them all we have them both on display in our, in our um, artifact room in a visitor center, but um, they didn't carbon date the bone. They, you know, they found it 19 and carbon dating came out in 1950, but we didn't start dating until the mid 1960s with radiocarbon 14. So the bone now has been exposed to the elements. You really couldn't use that technique. It's been contaminated, you know, it's been exposed, but um, for bones to last in new England, uh, more than a few hundred years is kind of unusual. I get the New Hampshire Archaeological Society. My dad was a member of that, and I, and I, you know, I get all the literature. And they do find bones in New Hampshire occasionally, sometimes a few thousand years old. But the soil has a lot of acid, so it's acidic, and it eats up the bones. If the animals don't get it, you know, in the normal weathering conditions, you know, the acid in the soil dissolves bones within a few hundred years. Occasionally, I think in peat or maybe in clay, and there's some other conditions where bones will last, you know, longer. But it's not like some other places in the world where the bones, like in a desert or in the southwest United States, where they can find. But we just returned from the Four Corners a few weeks ago and went to some of the ancient sites out there. And they, they, they're showing some, they're talking about bones, you know, and these bones in the wood at some of these structures like uh, Casa Grande. Well, we went to um, Chaco Canyon. We also went to um, Mesa Verde and uh, Canyons of the Ancients and another site called Hovenweek. And they still have wooden beams there from 800, 900 years ago. The wood's still there. It's amazing. Wow. In New England, it would have been gone a long time ago, you know, because of the weathering conditions and everything. But bones usually don't last that long. One bone found on the main site in 1970 was looked at by a museum, and they thought it was human. And I, when I saw that report last year, I said, where's that? Number one, where's where's the follow-up report? Number two, where's the piece of bone? What happened to it, you know? Because maybe today they could do better analysis with it, you know? Yeah. And I don't know where the bone is today. Which, what, what a shame. But 49 years ago, the bone was found and, uh, you know, a museum identified it as human. I, they didn't have DNA and all that back then, you know? So right. what a shame. I, I don't know where it is. I Honestly, if I find it someday, uh, <laughs> I think we'll have it tested, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. right. Well, to, to, to build on Timmy's question before he gets to the next one, um, because we, you know, we talk with uh, Andrew and Greg a lot here, especially on on this show. What a wouldn't it be something if it were one of those another half of that Denisovan thumb, you know? Oh, <laughs> cool. Boy, those guys really get around, right? They, um, they would, yeah, yeah, that would be amazing. Uh, that's amazing what they found with that whole thing, you know. Right, I've been reading yeah. up on that a little bit. It's and the amazing. conditions, too, are just like yeah. you said, you know, really against the odds because 
You know, yeah. they would have expected, uh, again, some of that degeneration, uh, 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 if you will, uh, to be very hard to carbon date. And, and for some reason, they were able to at least do a mitochondrial test on that one. Um, I got an odd question. It calls for speculation. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, in talking with these guys and doing history of the archaeology here, in the, especially in the United States, you know, especially from really the 1930s on, when the concept of eugenics really started taking in, uh, it, it in some way biased archaeologists to uh, dismiss things that uh, might have uh, originated from somewhere other than uh, Americans, <laughs> if you will, uh, Native Americans especially. They they would. You know, they withhold a lot of that stuff or or write it out as something that is not Native American, but uh, post-Columbus American, if you will. Um, and uh, so, or sometimes they just hide the results or withhold them. And and when you say, you know, where's the follow up on that research? That's what came to mind. And I, I don't know if you've seen any of that up close or firsthand or not. And again, it calls for speculate the role of eugenics, you know, which is some some species are better than others. You know? um, yeah. Yeah. So we, we want to make the better people look better, you know, even in your description of Native Amer Americans being much, much taller and so in some cases fairer skinned than uh, Europeans, um, you know, it, it, it kind of made that light bulb go off in, in my head. Um, mm. Any spe again, it calls for speculation or opinion, and if you don't have one, that's fine too. But with uh, the results in archaeological tests and the role that eugenics might have played in that, have you bumped up against any of that, or or not, or you haven't seen it up up close enough, at least specific to the, your land, uh, to graft an opinion one way or another. Yeah, I don't know if I can really answer that, um, you know, because of the amount of information I have. But um, I will say that I know John Wesley Powell had like the Powell Doctrine, you know, at the Smithsonian, basically, that the Americas have to be kind of pure, you know, not nobody came here until Columbus, you know, so it's just right. pure American. Because he wanted to see it as kind of a test tube, I think, of cultures, to, you know, developing independently from the rest of the world, you know. Yeah. And so one of the comments, and I think Cyrus Thompson was his right-hand man, basically, he he said that he found so many old world pre-Columbian artifacts, he didn't have time to catalog or whatever, store them all. There were just so many of them. But contrary to what his boss was saying, that you shouldn't find any old pre-Columbian, old world pre-Columbian artifacts because they shouldn't be here, you know? Right, and, right. Not even the Vikings, you know, kind of thing. Not even, so right. It's kind of a yeah, biasness there, you know? It's not like they're looking for the truth. They're looking for, I, know, I don't know, they have an agenda, I guess, they're trying to fill, I guess, you know? Um, I'd rather look for the truth, you know, which whatever way the uh, the uh, the facts take you, I guess, you know, that's right. the way we kind of look at it, you know. Yeah, well, we're so, we're uh, definitely in support of you on that. Yeah, you know, and uh, yeah, so I mean, I started way back in the 1800s, and then uh, you know, following that, there was another gentleman ahead of the Smithsonian. Also, I mean, he said there was nobody in Americas, and you know, before 4,000 years ago, and now we're talking much, much, you know, pre-Clovis. We're sure. finding pre-Clovis right. sites, you know, across the North Central and South America. And I know there's a there's a group of Native Americans in the Amazon that actually have uh, Australian 
I think they call Australia, Malaysian, I guess it is, um, mm -hmm. uh, DNA in there. And how did that happen? How did they get, right. how did those people come in and, you know, get to the jungles, down into the Amazon jungle area, you know, without passing? Because, you know, I used to thought they went through uh, Siberia, through the Bering mm -hmm. Strait, into Alaska, and through that. You know, that's what they were t teaching for decades, you know, and now they're yeah. saying, well, that may not be quite the uh, the way they did it. The way it was. That area yeah. So people have been a, staking you know, their lives yeah. and careers on this stuff will be very yeah, defiant yeah. to information like that. And I'd say, yeah, no, no, yeah, impossible. Yeah, and yeah we've yeah, seen a, a yeah. couple of shows. There's the one with that, that uh, rock specialist, the geologist there that tours the States. And he's looking mostly for Templar stuff, you know, Knights oh, Templar. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And th there was an ancient aliens episode I saw. They found this elongated skull, one of these elongated skulls, right? And in somewhere in the, I think it was either South America or, or Mexico, but it was definitely south of where we are. And uh, so they found somebody who was willing to do like a genealogy test on the skull and found it to be of Irish heritage. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh. That's why we say, yeah. And and the poor the poor dude with the Mozart hair there who's on that show, you know, he was he was not happy to hear that. <laughs> oh no kidding. Yeah, Giorgio. Well, yeah, Giorgio. He was kinda hoping it would be extraterrestrial or something, but you know. Oh yeah, yeah. It's actually more down to earth, but still interesting, I guess, you know. Yeah. yeah. But it's the kind of information that gets hidden, just yeah. like you said. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Georgia well, kind of called out of place, yeah. we, we call UPAs out of place archaeological artifacts, and our site <laughs> is one of those. It shouldn't be there, and there's, they're across the whole. You know, we're finding the same type of features at our site that they're finding out in eastern Colorado, Alabama, Indiana, stonework that looks just like what we have not only at our site, but from Quebec all the way down through the mid Atlantic states. Um, there's probably 800 sites, and one site actually in a town in Connecticut of North Stonington has 8,000 features. And I have a book uh, called Ceremonial Stonework. And I show it to all our visitors. We don't sell it at our museum. We should. It's a great book. It came out only three years ago. And it has the same type of stonework, the walls, the standing stones, the serpentine walls. Um, it has, um, you know, the stone portal uh, windows, we call them. And these things have been found across Massachusetts, even in Woodstock, New York, where the 69 Festival was. There's all wow. sorts of structures out there. And the Hudson River actually has, in Putnam and Westchester County, they're trying to protect them so they don't give out the GPS coordinates to most of them, you know, because there's mm. vandalism and stuff. Right. But there's about 200 structures just north of New York City. that has. That's where most of the structures are located, um, where the most inscriptions are up in Vermont. And yep. our site probably is the Reader's Digest version of everything across the Northeast. <laughs> and everybody says that when they, when they come there, they say, you know, it, you got everything here that it stretches from, you know, Quebec all the way down, you know, past Pennsylvania and even things out West, you know, as I mentioned, way out West, you got all these things on your site here. It's kind of compressed, you know, that's, I think that's <laughs> what it makes our site a little bit unique. You know, we have everything mm. kind of, you know, yeah. but we're not unique <laughs> totally in a way, you know, so. <clears throat> Wow. Dennis, That's, I wanted to uh, ask you a question. Uh, there's, a, you know, there's different sites throughout the United States. Uh, Yosemite, uh, there was a site over in um, Colorado. It's tied to the Native Americans. And, and, you know, people have been hiking these sites for years. And, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the people disappear. Uh, whether it be through a portal 
or aliens or or whatever. What's your thoughts and opinions on, you know, what's happening with these people and these disappearances? And these I sites? don't, you know, I there is a gentleman, I think, and I think he's written a book and he has those YouTube videos and he's mm-hmm. talked, to, especially National Potch, you know, people missing there. Yeah. And I, I've followed that a little bit. I, I'm not an expert in that area. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I don't know what's happening to these people. I have that happen at our site, but we usually find them lost out in the woods somewhere. You know, we have a really clearly marked trail system and it's usually at the end of the day. And it's like, there's a car in the park and I say, okay, now you've been working seven days a week. You know, since I retired from the airlines, I've gone to seven days a week now working, you know, wow. so, uh, <laughs> and it gets tiring. I mean, I love yeah, the place. Technically, you know, that's week not after week. Dennis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not retirement, you know, and it's every day. And my wife told me that before I retired, you're going to get aggravated with people. And I, when I only had a three days a week there and four days at the airline, I was so thrilled to be there, you know, be home, you know, and even at the museum. But now it's like seven days a week. It's like, okay, where are these people? I told them how to follow the trails, you know, <laughs> but, but that, that other thing you mentioned is interesting. And I know there's a gentleman that does YouTube videos on that mm-hmm. and particularly at national parks where people have never, you know, they've gone and they've never been seen again. I thought that was interesting. I just, I don't know a lot about it, but I have seen some of his videos. Yeah. Hey, Tim, since you asked the question, would you have any idea on whether there's a correlation with um, a spike in, in electromagnetic frequency? These uh, like the Bermuda triangle, for example, that has the ley lines and the magnetics Mm -hmm. and and things of that nature. Uh, Do you, do you know if they ever correlated uh, the the ec- all that extra uh, magnetic energy with these disappearances. Yeah, I don't and, think I don't well, think they they were able to make a connection with anything yet that I'm aware of. But yeah, it's definitely something to think about, though, Chip. Yeah, well, I'm glad they didn't make it as opposed to you know citing druids and all the <laughs> yeah. things. So at least your documentary is better than mine. <laughs> so, uh, you I know, can't, I can't I gotta watch TV with Timmy yeah. more often. I think he, he sees the better documentaries than I do. <laughs> but you no, know, one but, thing about our site, our site that happens is the uh, bad people go up there and do a lot of professionals and amateurs and just you know people up with their cameras and we do let people go up in drones. You know, for for TV. You know, we just had the History uh, Channel there doing a show and we had Irish TV. In fact, our shows on. Uh, Irish TV, I believe it's on uh, the 9th of December, and they came oh. over and did a two-day shoot. But a lot of um, a lot of companies that have come in and do that, and even individuals, they lose their batteries, you know, and then they put a freshly charged battery in, and also in drones, you know, and it seems to be, and we have one guy who's a technician, he was actually in this science, I don't know, he was in some other, before he became a videographer, he was actually in science, you know, and he was, he was analyzing, going, I don't know what it is, but because it might be the rock. It has a lot of iron in it. You have quartz crystals mm-hmm. and we have quartz in our rock and we have an earthquake fault line right through the center of the hill. It runs, oh. uh, runs out to Cape Ann and mass Massachusetts, right out to the Atlantic ocean. Then it curves ends up down in Connecticut where some of these other sites are like North Stonington area. So this, uh, it's called the Clinton Newbury fault line. Our hilltop is completely cut right in half by this fault line. And you can see it. You visibly can come up and visit our site and see how the hills just split right in half, you know, so batteries seem to die at our place. I don't think people disappear, but the batteries die on all sorts of applications. 
And, you know, and it just frustrates the heck out of the crews that are trying to shoot, you know, audio and, you know, cameras and even drones, you know. So it's, we laugh about it a lot. Like, you're probably going to have to get those batteries charged up pretty quick. <laughs> and they do, you know. So I'll mention that, you know. So yeah. that's something well, we do see up there a lot, you know. Yeah, Timmy and I would blame it on ghosts, you know, because, we, you know, we, we do these paranormal things and we see batteries mm-hmm. drain all the time, you know. So maybe oh, okay. it's uh, the yeah. ghost of Mystery Hill yep. or something, or, or William Goodwin, perhaps, you know, it could be. I mean, you never know. I don't know if you know Jeff Belanger. He's a, oh, he's sure. Yeah, go- I know. Yeah, he's a big guy. He's been to our site, and he's done, a, you know, he's done some YouTube up there, and he's a great guy. He did a calendar and has a picture of our sacrificial table. The whole area came out beautiful. I think it was a 2016 or 2015 calendar. But he's a good guy, and he's a guy that you know he would talk about our site for sure. You know, if you have him oh, on, oh yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah, good guy. You know, nice yeah. guy. Yeah. Well, there's yeah. a there'd be a lot of area to cover, and and I can imagine that uh, your demographic, I guess, a, a lot of the people that would visit America Stonehenge in beautiful Salem, New Hampshire, uh, would be considered along the New Age uh, movement. You know, oh, so mm. did, do you ever have people that that visit? They've come up with these theories that either baffle or surprise you, uh, that you wouldn't say, oh, my God, that sounds ridiculous. But, oh, okay. Never considered that, yeah. Is, uh, I, mm. could, I, I oh. could only imagine some of the things you must hear from visitors. Yeah, we have over the decades, you know. I mean, we've had a lot of people offer different theories as to what the site is, what the walls, the walls being a map of the world, you know, and different, different interests. I think the walls may have something to do with the constellation, especially the serpentine walls being Draco, the, the constellation, you know, of the, uh, the dragon. And 4,000 years ago, one of its stars was Thuban, which would have been the pole star, you know. So wow. in the course of the evening, it would be rotating around Thuban. And to me, Thuban looks like a serpent. Whereas the Big Dipper doesn't look like a bear, you know, a little dipper for some reason. It doesn't look like, but the, but the surf, you know, some of them, I guess, use your imagination. But uh, Hans Holzer's been at our place. He wrote a book called Long wow. uh, Before Columbus, and that was in 1992. In the 70s, he came up many times, starting in 71, I think. And in 74, when he came up with four different psychics, I guess they call them experiences today. Mm-hmm. Um, that's in his book, and they had, uh, you know, they... They had kind of a reading by them what they thought these people looked like. And, you know, if you read his book long before Columbus, that book came out 20 years later in 1992. You can see what the results were, what their experiences were. When he was there in 76, and he actually directed the uh, Lennon Nimoy In Search of episode number two out of the, on us, you know. And I think he actually was in that segment. You can actually pull it up on YouTube. So so Hans Holter, now they got the new uh, TV show. The yeah, Hans his daughter's Holter doing files. that. Yeah, Alexandra. Uh, yeah. I, I had yeah. the honor of interviewing her a lot, like five radio shows ago. You know, oh, so it was like almost wow. a decade ago. Yeah, really. Wow. You know, she's yeah. a sweetheart, you know. I mean, yeah. she yeah. keeps her, her father's memory, you know, not only alive, but vibrant, you know. And, and right. Right. that's always that's nice good. to see, you know. That's I, very I, good. Yeah. Yeah. She's, he was nice. And I might've met her. I don't remember. It was back in the seventies. And I, I saw her on one of the episodes. I thought she looked, she was very, seemed very nice. And that company has talked to us. So, you know, we'll see what happens, you know? Ooh. Oh boy. So, yeah. I can't say too much, but we'll see, you know, uh, um, fingers crossed maybe here. In the, yeah. You know, so maybe we'll, uh, Maybe I'll get a chance to meet her. If I didn't meet her in the 70s, I can't remember. But when uh, he was there in 74, Betty Hill came up to meet him. So that's how we became wow. friends with Betty Hill. Uh, huh. And she remained a lifelong friend until she passed away, I guess, about 15 years ago of my mom's, you know. 
and wow. uh, and the family too, basically. So uh, wow, yeah. So we've had some a lot of interesting people up there. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. We could definitely hang out. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Travis Travis Welton was just up two years ago too. You know, he was came he up really. And yeah, and he took a complete tour, and I had met him at the UFO conference in Exeter, New Hampshire. You know, I met him over there, and then about a month later, he came up for one in Lemonster, and sure enough, he showed up at our place and spent a half a day up there. He's a very nice guy, very nice guy to, you know, to be around. Well, I guess it, it begs the question, then, that since we're talking about the, the your demographic, you know, the people that, that tour uh, America Stonehenge, have you noticed, uh, or not, uh, a kind of an increase in uh, the the extraterrestrial talk uh, around uh, America's Stonehenge, because I mean, yeah. Timmy and I have seen it. You know, over the last five years, especially, it seems to bleed into almost all the other groups. You know, the paranormalists and the metaphysics people, and uh, it, it seems to really be kind of bleeding into everything. So, so under and since you knew Betty Hill, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. You 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 may have actively noticed something like that if if it has taken place or if you have seen kind of a uh, an increase in in extraterrestrial talk around uh, Stonehenge or America Stone. Well, I think the uh, ancient aliens is probably really you know we because you you know as you mentioned we met a lot of those guys David Childress has been at our place you know and uh, wow. Alan Butler's been there too and and a couple other guys too have been at our place. Hugh Newman's another one, you know, he's been, he's been there too, but uh, we were on the ancient aliens. Actually, they filmed this in spring and, uh, and the day they fin- finished up filming, they actually found the 13th uh, stone window or portal, you know, that day Ooh, the cameraman wow. got his cameras all put away. We're walking down with one of our archeologists and he goes, Dennis, you know, that looks like another one of those portals there, a beautiful lintel, you know, hole in the wall, but it had like little uh, shutters, little stone shutters in it. And I said, wow, I've never noticed that before. He went over to it and, you know, unfortunately, cameraman had all his stuff put away and it wasn't really part of the, what, you know, what he was up there to do, you know, but there it was, you know, it was a 13th window. And that episode uh, aired about six or seven times already. It was under under the uh, Druids, I think, as you mentioned. And what oh, they showed okay. was, uh, uh, they showed our site, did a nice job on it, actually, you know, and then they showed um, uh, the Hudson Valley, some of the chambers there, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. that's the highest density of chamber. And then they did Gunji Womp, which is a site in Groton, Connecticut, not too far from the Navy base, and not far from North Stonington. It's right across from North Stonington. And Gunjiwamp, back in 1654, a guy named John Pynchon wrote to Governor Winthrop and asked, what is this place? You know, 365 years ago, he's asking what this place was, you know. So that it was built in the last 200 years or 300 Mm -hmm. years is not so. People writing about it 365 years ago going, you know, what is this thing, you know? And it's a big, big site, 200 acres of walls and chambers and everything, you know? Remember the episode, and, and boy, I'm I'm glad that was you know because yeah I I remembered seeing something about uh, Stonehenge here in the states on that show, and it was uh, an abductee that featured the Hudson Valley in the New Yorker, the Schreiber guy. Um, oh yeah, yes, yeah, well, yeah. I read his book before uh, back in the '80s. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, he he yeah he got talking about him and. Uh, there's a couple other friends of mine that are down in that area, and they're kind of into UFOs. Linda Zimmerman, mm-hmm. and she um, she she does TV, and she talks a lot. Of, she's been on CBS TV about that. New York uh, this summer, she was talking. Now she's been filmed for four more shows. But I, I you know, I, I Facebook friended her, and I 
told about us because Dennis, I was at your site in 1978, and that's wow. how I fell in love with these ancient stone ruins. And I said, "Oh wow. my God, I probably met you, could have met you." But then she also was very interested in UFOs, and mm-hmm. you know, the flap that happened in the 1980s over the Hudson Valley is right over where a lot of those chambers were. So right. the UFO Hunter Show with Bill Burns, I believe, did a show ten years ago. My dad was still alive, and they showed some of the stone chambers down there. One of them had one of the big monoliths in front. It was a beautiful structure with a, a monolith, probably where the sun will illuminate, go across that monolith and go into the chamber. You know, like New Grange mm-hmm. in Ireland kind of thing. You know, yeah. and um, so yeah, they they've kind of you know talk about both UFOs and the Hudson Valley. Well, one of my uh, co-pilot, one of my pilots actually, one, he was a captain too, and I was a captain back then at the same airline, and he actually made Newsweek with his co-pilot because he saw the triangular-shaped craft over the Hudson Valley. I think he was oh, landing wow. in LaGuardia, mm-hmm. and his name made, because he got a lot of ribbing from a lot of guys back, you know, people back I'm then. I'm sure, but, all back in that day, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, in, in fun, it was done in fun, you know, but, sure. you know, I always had an interest, and I always kind of believed that the universe is kind of full of life, and some of it could be visiting us, you know, and has visited us, so I, I didn't have a real problem with that myself, you know. So, yeah, it seems like the odds would be really in favor of something like that, you know, uh, and arguably disclosure, quote unquote, happened, I think, December last year, uh, somewhere like I in like the New so, York Times or something, right? Yeah, so, but, and, you know, by the time they had some loud disclosure, louder, you know, I mean, <laughs> it, it was on the cover of New York Times, but I think, you know, the... The president oh. tweeted something that day that took all the attention out of that. And, and yeah. so, you know, the, there went that idea. But by the time, you know, loud disclosure comes, I think, well, it'll be kind of a meh, you know. One of the things with the Tic Tac, you know, remember the Elba San Diego, the Tic Tac uh, <laughs> with the cat, with the pilot there. He lives right down the street in Wyndham, New Hampshire. He gets on, wow. to, you know. He gets on Travel Channel, one of those UFO shows, and on, I think, History, too. David, his first name is a favorite thing. So he lives right down the street, about seven miles, right in the same town where that Wyndham Chamber is, as a matter of fact. Although I don't think I've met him yet, you know. I was a pilot for 42 years, you know, and the airline's 35. We always have, you know, pilots like to talk to pilots, you know. But I'd like to meet him, you know, and see what his experience was, you know, with the Tic Tac, you know. And that that was all released, too, you know. Now, you you were a pilot for years and years, so did any any encounters... uh, uh, or not close. Yeah, nothing close. You know, things that we see off in the distance. I did uh, the UPS system for a number of years before we all got let go. Um, we flew night. I was on 727s flying, you know, anywhere from 35 to 40,000 feet or so. And we'd see things in the distance. I wish I had a high, you know, powered binoculars. We'd see things at night because that's what we did, you know, night flying. And I flew with a lot of military guys. And they, they, they told me some stories about some of their experiences, too. But nothing close enough there. It was right up next to the plane. You know, I mean, these things were out in the distance. Could have been a star. You'd see it change colors and then go away. Mm-hmm. It's like, where did that go? You know, was it a cloud? Mm-hmm. That you know, but, you know, it's just interesting. Very, very interesting, but not totally identifiable, of course. You know. Yeah. No, you know, I mean, it does beg the question, and and I mean, some of these guys they take a tremendous risk, even you know, uh, talking about it with with uh, anyone, uh, because right, right, they, yeah. they still yeah. do like to discredit folks like that, even in this day yeah, and age. Yeah. Or even, or yeah. especially in this day and age, and, and uh, yeah, so but at least you got there's, there's that much out of them. <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's kind of a stigma with it, you know, you're going to be a little cautious about, you know, yeah. <laughs> saying things yeah. about that. Right. Yeah, no. <laughs> right. But at least you're, you're retired, so, you know, it, it yeah, yeah. wouldn't be 
too too dangerous of a question to ask. No, no, no. I wish I had a close. The only thing we saw is Manchester, New Hampshire, back in the '60s, with a friend whose dad was an air traffic controller, and his dad had interesting things with radar. You know, with the mm. things he saw. But we saw a single in Manchester, New Hampshire, the, probably the coolest one I, uh, UFO. I'd say the next day it was in the uh, on the radio and the TV. So I think we saw something. It was a very very bright wow. thing. It was low. We kind of went around on this. Uh, this loop that goes around the city. We're coming back from one of my dad's friend who's, you know, involved with our ancient site at a camp in the middle of New Hampshire. So we were up there for a couple of days or whatever, came back and then we saw it and it's like, wow. And then the next day it was reported. So I think we saw something. It was, it was amazing, you know? Wow. Wow. That's cool. And back in the day again, where, you, you know, I mean, <laughs> to hear it on the radio, you know, that day later is huge. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It, yeah, it even was in cool. this day and age, it's hard to hear about stuff on the, you know, like on the ra- on the news or on the radio. So I mean, that exactly. that makes it special. Right, right, exactly. You guys, ready to take a break? We're at the top of the hour. Oh, at the top of the hour. I I got an idea. Why don't we take a break, then? <laughs> Why don't you think of that, man? <laughs> I second that. Yeah. If. Uh, <clears throat> If any of our listeners want to call and ask questions for Dennis, uh, the number here in the studio is 724-602-2826. That's 724-602-2826. And we'll be right back with Dennis Stone right after this. You're listening to WCT.FM, talk radio like no other. God, I love the station. WCT.FM, your talk station. Joe Biden promised Ukraine a billion dollars if they fired the prosecutor investigating his son's... Are you intrigued by Paranormal Talk Radio? You'll love the new Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live. You'll find a great selection of talk shows covering UFOs, ghosts, strange phenomena, and much more. Download the Paranormal Radio app now and start listening to the very best in paranormal talk entertainment, including the network you're listening to right now, the Paranormal Radio app, free in Google Play and the iOS App Store. L&M Merchandise is finally here. We have a large selection of shirts, hats, wall clocks, phone cases, stickers, jewelry, and much more. It's been a long time coming, but it's worth the wait with great prices and quality products from Calf Press. Just go to LateNightInTheMidlands.com and click the big blue banner at the top of every page. Every purchase helps keep LNM Radio on the air, so stock up and tell the world you're a late-nighter. So again, go to www.LateNightInTheMidlands.com and click the big blue banner at the top of every page. WCT.FM, your talk station. LM merchandise is finally here. We have a large selection of shirts, hats, wall clocks, phone cases, stickers, jewelry, and much more. It's been a long time coming, but it's worth the wait. With great prices and quality products from Calf Press. Just go to LateNightInTheMidlands.com and click the big blue banner at the top of every page. Every purchase helps keep LNM Radio on the air, so stock up and tell the world you're a late nighter. So again, go to www.late. 
humor It must be a tumor That's making you say the things you say Humor It must be a tumor Making you say the same things they say And when you lie Which is every day I must just call it what it is Humor It must be a tumor that's making you say the things you say Schumer, it must be a tumor Making you say the same things they say And when you lie, which is every day I must call it what it is Mondays from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Kindness Beyond the Veil, even in the darkest realms and mysteries, good things happen. Kind, even loving things in the paranormal, psychic world, extraterrestrials, mystical healing, light workers, starseeds, things that have astounded us since the beginning of time do have a Monday side to them. And we'll show you on Kindness Beyond the Veil every Monday, 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern with your host, Chip Reichenthal. Leading into Michael Barra's Late Night in the Midlands show at 9 Eastern, making Mondays worthy of looking forward to right here on WCETFM because that's where the action is. And welcome back to the Supernatural Realm on WCET.FM, www.latenightinthemidlands.com. And as I said before the break, the number to call in uh, with your questions or comments for the guest is 724-602-2826. 724-602-2826. Chip, are you there, buddy? I sure am, my friend. Yeah. What a what a great, great, phenomenal guest we have today. Uh, to remind our listeners, especially those joining us in this new hour, uh, our honored guest is Dennis Stone, proprietor of America Stonehenge in beautiful Salem, New Hampshire. And boy, it's just a lot of really fascinating, layers of fascinating stuff upon layer upon layer when it comes to America Stonehenge. Um, yeah, I got a couple of questions, but if you want to go first, brother, you can. Go ahead. Okay. All right. Uh, Dennis, I got to ask you, uh, as long as we're talking Stonehenge, we got to talk stones. There's a, a couple of, of things, a couple of questions I had in, in that regard. But I really want to, because there's a lot of, I guess, gossip. I don't know if it's the right word, but, you know, inquiring minds want to know. There are some stones that seem to have been marked for sacrifice, you know, back in the day. I guess we can call them sacrificial stones, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd love to hear more about those or that stone, if there's one or more than one. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can hear me okay? Yeah. yeah. You hear you just great. Oh, okay, just to make sure. Oh, good. Okay, I wasn't sure. Make sure my phone is working. Hey, right. better um, safe than sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure for a second there. Um, so there's a, the main, one of the main features is a stone, as I mentioned earlier, it's about 9,000 pounds and shaped like, like a bell actually. 
and it has a trapezoidal groove on it that's deeply cut into the stone with a little runnel, and it sets up on four legs. And when the first researcher got there in 1936 and he saw the site, um, the table appeared to be sitting on the ground. Uh, he purchased the site in 1936. He uh, began working on it in 1937, and he put up a chain-link fence around that one acre, and the fence is still there today, uh, wow. 82 years later. It's a beautiful uh, chain-link fence in great shape. Wow. <laughs> they don't make them like that anymore, I guess. Yeah, but, just uh, the fact to... <laughs> that it's still there is kind of happy <laughs> <Yeah>. times, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, pre-World War II. Everybody thinks it's a new fence, too. It looks really good. Wow. But um, he... he uh, yeah, he was a uh, kind of an antiquarian from Hartford, Connecticut. His first cousin was J.P. Morgan, and he was involved with insurance, and he uh, lived in different parts of the country, including Ohio. Hmm. And about 100 and, uh, over 110 years ago, he was living in Ohio as a special agent for his insurance company. And uh, he was actually going on in his days off mapping some of the uh, – well, Ohio has about originally about 10,000 mounds, and he was out there mapping some of these for the highway department. So he had a – uh, curiosity and a love of the uh, ancient past, you know, and so he was doing that, and then he lived on the West Coast for a while, but eventually he heard about our site, and uh, and he eventually made his way up to our site in 1936, and his right-hand man was a professional photographer for a company, so he was very lucky he had that, you know, a guy that could really take good photographs and, and was eager to photograph everything up there and record, you know, when he first came there, and then when the restoration, cleaning, and you know, excavation began for the site and uh, began in 1937. And so when they started digging around the table, they found the table was actually sitting on four legs, not sitting on the ground. Ooh. And uh, yeah, so it's like a table, actually. And when they got down to the bedrock, they found with that little runnel that comes out of that trapezoid groove on the surface, the top surface of the table, actually is a cutout in the bedrock. It's actually kind of a V-shaped cutout where like a vase could sit or where fluid would come off the table and actually go into the cutout. So either you put a vase there to collect it, or it would go into the bedrock. Well, as they got down, they also found another interesting feature. It's called the speaking tube or oracle tube. It's about a six-foot-long uh, tunnel, if you will, between the largest chamber we call the oracle chamber and the sacrificial table. This tube is um, probably like 12 inches tall, six inches wide, and it runs six feet through this wall of stone. And inside the oracle chamber, right below that tube where it comes into the oracle chamber, there's actually a step, and it's part of the bedrock. So they quarried part of the floor away and used that building material, and they lowered the floor that way. Uh, but they left a step there. So somebody around five and a half feet tall, roughly, I'm about five eight almost, you can stand there very comfortably, and you can yell through that tube, and the voice will come out underneath the sacrificial table. And uh, mm. opposite there's a ramp and the ramp is above the table where people could actually stand and observe perhaps a ceremony of some type. Right. And his voice will come out under the table and it's like the wizard of Oz, you know, people standing there <laughs> hearing a spirit right. or something talking, you know, reminiscent of what they used to do in, in the, the Oracle times, you know, in ancient Greece, they, yeah. they had, you know, they, they consider them magic tricks, I guess, but even though it, you know, it's just the way that sound, <laughs> uh, sound carries, in, in weird ways if you if you do it right. So, yeah, yeah that I think, lumps it into that time period, too, for, as far yeah. as yeah. interest. Well, yeah. I, I've been to Delphi in Greece with the oracles, and I guess there was a vapor that came out of the ground that would make people a little high anyway, but they had a, tubes there that people, again, would speak through, and people would hear of oracle, you know, giving them maybe future or maybe some, you know, some other information, you know, or inspiration right. or whatever, maybe fortune to... 
But um, I've been to Malta too, and we went to Malta about 20 years ago, which at that time was some of the oldest megalithic sites in the world, and now we know Gobekli Tepe is much older. But they had uh, big holes in the walls, and I would ask the guy, I said, what are those for? And they said, well, those are oracle tubes where people would speak, and people would hear you know, a voice coming at them, you know, thinking it was a spirit or God or something like that. I said, we get the same thing in New Hampshire at a site called America Stonehenge. The same kind of thing, you know, the same idea where the voice will come out, people will hear it during a ceremony, you know, and... Uh, so that's that's what we think that tube is. It's horizontal. It's not a you know a chimney or anything like that. But that oracle chamber has five cl- stone closets, beautiful stone closets. So there's a lot. It has a, a stone bench you can sit on. It has two underground drains. It has two carvings. One is of a what they call a running gear, but it looks like a. The only thing I've ever found that looks like it, it's called the Spanish Ibex, and that would put it back in Iberia, where, again, the inscriptions wow. may have come from. And it has an arrow carving, just a little simple arrow that was found in 1967 near the uh, what would be a window. So it has a window also. It has a chimney, and the chimney until 1958 had two stone movers that could be moved to adjust the draft if you ever had a fire in there. Interesting. And it has an eight-foot eight bed, a, a bed that would hold somebody that's, you know, a sizable person or a small person, and it has a window in the bed so you can actually look out if you're laying there and see the inside of the chamber if any activity took place. So there's a lot of lot of features in that oracle. And then the skeptics say the table was a cider press, and that was where they stored the apple cider barrels in the York. And you can't, first off, you can't get an animal like a horse into the sacrificial cable area or a wagon. There's no room for it. So if you're bringing apples up to have them crushed and take away the product and the pulp, you know, or whatever, and there's no archaeological or historical information ever saying that the table was a cider press. And usually 12 to 18 inches above ground for cider press made out of wood, usually with metal bands and the big screws, you know, the crank down on the apple. There's none of that at our site. But because our site shouldn't be there, they come up with things like, well, that's a that's an apple cider press, or maybe no. it's a yeah, limestone for making soap. You know, a eight, a 9,000-pound limestone. Usually they weigh about 200 pounds, and something you could pick up, you know, almost pick up by yourself, you know? Right. It seems with these stones and, and with people, you know, uh, Sartre, a uh, French philosopher, I think, was from the Karnak region and said, hell is oh. other people. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, uh, with that with that in mind, there, you know, a, a lot of people that have tried to, uh, to, uh, to remove the marble of this 4,000-year-old place by citing things around the time of 18th, uh, 1800s and 1900s, including quarrying, which is the basis of my follow-up question. But if there's a chimney, would that... Uh, would that add to this speculation of all the things that may have been amended uh, as part of the quarrying and all that stuff in the 18 and 1800s and 1900s? You think with the chimney and the, the whole thing about apple press and all that stuff might come from the, that segment of the population? Where it really started, I guess, around the early 1930s, back when it was uh, Mystery Hill. But still, you know, there's that stigma, you know, 1800s, 1900s, mm. so there's a chimney and, you know, the. Uh, even though my question is about quarrying, you think because the chimney, you know, might people might say, wow, that's more 1800s or 1900s than it would be 2000 B.C., you know, even with no, the I, oracle yeah. tube and all that. 
No, not at all. Yeah, that the the, uh, the Oracle too. Yeah, the chimney doesn't. Chimney is actually it's just part of the. Actually, in the ceiling, there's a a square opening, and in that square opening, there were these two stone louvers, and we have photographs of them taken back when Goodwin was there. And again, they were stolen the year we opened the museum up in 1958. Either a visitor or somebody came up after hours and they stole them. So we have they've been missing for 61 years. Wow. But it would have nothing to do with uh, you know like a you know historic you know 19th or 18th century kind of thing. Um, there are about 12 drill marks and drill. When they split stones starting around 1800, they would uh, use a star drill and they would make a hole and they would do this across the top of a rock and then they would put tapered guides, these two metal like guides, and then they'd put a wedge and they would take a maul like a sledgehammer and strike it and that's the way they would split stones. And you can see that on a big scale now when you go down highways, you see the gigantic drill marks that they make mm-hmm. with all the pneumatic equipment today. Well, that's about that's a little almost 250 year old technology. So in the 1850s, when the Patty family, there were five generations of shoemakers, everybody calls them farmers. They didn't really do much farming up there. It was shoemaking, five generations, you know, cordwainers making shoes. The site doesn't look like a shoe shop. I had three grandparents that worked in shoe shops. Nor does it look like a farm. I lived in a farm for three years when I began flying. I was up in North Clarendon, Vermont, and I used to look at all the farms, including the one I stayed at when I became a, you know, an airline pilot. Um, I was in Rutland, Vermont at the time, and I'm like, that site does not look like a farm. <laughs> no, it doesn't look like a shoe shop. And as far as a cider, cider mill, you know, for making cider, the nearest apple orchard was down the hill a half a mile away. Imagine that, trying to bring all of that up to the top of the hill, crush it, and then take it away. But you can't get a horse and a wagon next to the sacrificial table. I can't get my ATVs in there to get the leaves out. I was doing that today. I have to pocket, carry all the leaves <laughs> by hand about 30 or 40 feet, you know, because you can't get in there. With, so... You know, we have actually photographs going back to 1920. Uh, we have three of them. We have one that actually was taken a little bit before. Nine. So some people say, oh, maybe Mr. Goodwin rearranged the site so much that it doesn't look like it's original. He did do cleaning. He did do some restoration and excavation. Mm-hmm. But we have photographs taken 16 years before he even came to the site. And you can see the walls are still there. And they're in a little poor you know, state of you know, repair, if you will, you know. Because he had to clean out the debris, he put some stones back on top of some of the walls. But some people saying, "Oh, he rearranged the whole site." It's just—it's really malaki, you know. It's—it's it's to fit their agenda that, well, because a table can't be accessed by a horse with a wagon of apples, maybe Mr. Goodwin put the table there. You can see the Oracle <laughs> Chamber wall behind in the nineteen, you know, the nineteen hundred, nineteen twenty photographs. We got, like I say, three of them. So that's, you know, they're just coming, they're just making up stuff to fit their theory, basically. We do have photographs. And actually, 1935, the Haverhill Gazette was up there with a guy named Reverend Ward a year before Goodwin ever showed up in his pictures of the site, before Goodwin ever came to the site, you know. So that about Goodwin building stuff, you know, the Patties were shoemakers again, and, and they didn't have... He didn't have six husky sons running around building right. all the thousands. Yeah, of that's, that's worse and, worse for cows than it would be for stones anyway. You know, yeah, you, make, know. Yeah. you know. Well, he only See. had one. He actually only had one son that lived, and one son that died at seventeen years old uh, in Boston. And he had five daughters. Now I don't know if the daughters were husky. Maybe they were. You know. So the old thing, old Patty, <laughs> he built this folly up there using his sons or daughter, whatever to build all the. Thousand, you ever pick up a rock? These things are heavy. I mean, it's you know, down, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, I've tried. Stones weight. Yeah, it's a lot of work, you know. So mm-hmm. you don't just go out and do that. You have to have a reason to do that, you know. Sure. And we have yeah. thousands and thousands of feet of wall. 
And a lot of them have quarried flat stones in them, and that's not typical of the farm wells of New England. Right. They're usually field stones left by the glaciers. These are big, gigantic, and some of these are stood on their end. They call them orthostats, and some of these are laid horizontally, and they make up little chambers or even the windows they mentioned. And some are stood up vertically, and they become the astronomical alignments. We have 26 astronomical alignments at the site. They have the cross-quarter days, the quarter days. We have the, the lunar standstills. And we have a true north alignment. And we have one other that aligns with a 14-foot fallen monolith, 14 feet tall, that wow. fell over and broke in three pieces that aligns with a star Isa. So, you know, it's not just one alignment or a couple alignments, which could be coincidental. We have 26. But the Harvard-Smithsonian report in 1978, uh, from a 1973 to 1977 survey by a professional surveyor, whose father was a president of the New England Surveyors Association. So the family was no a bunch slouch, of surveyors. Then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. These and the guy's still alive today, and he's just he's just retiring like I am from survey work. And he was just up, uh, he was just up um, last year visiting us, and I had not shown him the, the uh, serpentine walls. He's very interested in that because it was all out in a dense forest, you know. And so when he surveyed, it was a lot more difficult going through the forest to survey. But um, so anyway, um, you know, uh, so we have all these. The, the results came back in 1978. The Harvard Smithsonian said. If those stones were used for astronomical purposes, they don't quite work today because of the Earth's tilt. The Earth's axis actually goes through a 41,000-year cycle. It's called the obliquity cycle, and today it's about 23.5 degrees, but it varies from 22 degrees 40 minutes up to 24 degrees, I think, 10 minutes, something like that. It goes up and back and forth about one minute, and that's confused often with the precession of the equinoxes, which is 25,920 years. That's a different cycle, you know, that changes the yep. pole star and the seasons of the, uh, of the uh, precession of the equinoxes. They call it the seasons change and the signs of the zodiac change because of that. So we have both of those events going on. So our site would work about 1800 BC plus or minus 200 years. That's the same as the 1971 carbon dating that put the age of the site back to about 2000 BC. So both the astronomical alignments and the radiocarbon-14 seemed to indicate the site's about 4,000 years old. Yeah, it makes so sense, uh, even astronomic, astronomically speaking. Right, right, yeah. And that verified the uh, carbon dating, I think. Wow. So uh, they also said one other thing you have at your site, and this is a complete surprise to us. We're happy with the date, by the way. I was like, wow, that's the 1971 date, pretty much, you know, mm-hmm. for the carbon dating. They said you have 23 star alignments. And so far, uh, 24, I'm sorry. And so far, we've only identified Isa. Uh, so in the future, we have to have some people that are really experts in this, you know, come in and do more research and determining what the other 23 star alignments are at our site. So we would have something like 49 alignments possibly at our site if they're verified. Yeah, yeah I, I meant but, to ask you about uh, serpentine wall because I, I don't know what that means. And I, you know, I'm here to learn from you. Uh, and, oh, no problem. <laughs> and, and again, uh, past that. You know, I think I hear quarrying, stone quarrying, and I think, you know, that that could have had a very destructive impact on this site or the purity of the site. And your opinion on that, but first, mm-hmm. uh, the serpentine wall. The serpentine wall. Well, the uh, quarrying was something that the Paddy family had done at the site. The uh, actually, the guy Jonathan, he was a third generation there, and he was another, you know, shoemaker. And he also, in the, he got the land from his mother in a quick claim on Christmas Eve, I guess, of 1801. And then 1802, he moves his family into his mother's home. She had actually abandoned it because her husband died in 1778 from 
Revolutionary War injuries. He was kind of a local hero. And Patty family moves in there, and I, like I say, has two sons and five daughters, and there's possibly two other daughters that we can't get the names of. So we had a little bit sizable family, pretty typical for that time period. And uh, by the time his family, they, you know, the kids grew up, became empty nesters. By the 1830s, he took in slaves for about, um, I'm sorry, he took in the town paupers. And we have actually a handwritten book. And I don't know if people know we have this book. It's pretty cool. It's all handwritten. The people would put a bid in for the paupers or the poor people, and they would have them stay at their house, and they would get paid so much a year. So Patty did that for about seven years. And we had the names of the people. At one point, he had 11 people staying in this wooden house located on a part of the site we call the Patty area. It was a 20 by 40 foot, two story high wooden house. So he supplemented his income uh, shoemaking by getting, I think one year he got 360 bucks, which I think around 18. That's a lot of money. Whatever it was, it's a a lot of money. Yeah. And he did that to 1838 when he no longer did that. And then that's the time he became an abolitionist and helped out with the underground railway. But if I back up just a little bit, it's about 1800 when he moved into the house. He was a tax collector for three years for the town of Salem. He made money doing that, uh, collecting taxes. So he, he was supplementing his income. He wasn't, a, you know, an overly rich person. You know, he was like everybody else, picking up a little money here and there. Mm-hmm. So Pat, uh, when Patty uh, he died in 1849, and then his wife, um, the house burnt burnt partly, I guess, damaged by fire in 1855. And his wife Betsy, I think, stayed there for a while. Um, and, um, around that time, they, they started removing some stones from the site. And that's where we still see 12 of those drill marks. Those are the modern drill marks for splitting stone. Okay. If the entire site had been built by the Patty family, not only the uh, sacrificial table, all the roof slabs, these are multi-ton roof slabs. There's amazing stones they use for the roofs. Mm-hmm. All of those stones, the standing stones, we have a lot of stones, even in the main site that are stood up vertically. And then the astronomical alignments, which look like gigantic arrowheads. So we have literally hundreds and hundreds of big slabs at the site, and including the stone walls, that you'd find drill marks. And you'd find the drill marks in the quarry site that the stone came out of, too. But you don't. You only find about 12 of these drill marks. And that's they were left behind by the quarrymen. And he actually left the little toolkit behind, the plug, and the two tapered guides are on display in our museum. And we have a diagram showing how they would be used. So one of the guys that was a quarryman up there taking these stones away, um, you know, they, they left the kit behind. Patty knew that the tax laws, if he didn't quarry, if they didn't quarry the stone and they did not, all they did is they just split stones and pulled them away you know, on sleds or whatever, okay. that there was no tax to be paid. If they quarried these out of the bedrock, uh, they would have to pay a tax. It was called the quarry tax. These were quarried out by the ancient people. So they were already sitting in the structure. So they, so they saved the tax money. See, so you know, so he saved the little money selling these stones, and they became stone bridges in Salem, and they ended up in some of the, huh. you know, like there's a couple dams. So they were actually cannibalizing the site. But this is true of the pyramids in Egypt. Stonehenge is missing a lot of its stones. I've been there. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Avebury in England. I've been to Avebury. They're one of the biggest megalithic sites in the world. And you go there, and you'll see concrete columns. It's like, what's that concrete doing there? That marks where one of the big monoliths was, was and it was taken away. And they used it for making the little village of Avebury where the Red Lion Inn is, and they have a you know a couple of buildings and houses there. They actually started destroying some of the stones there in Avebury to recycle them into more modern, you know, a few hundred years ago, just like our site was. So people accuse our site of being, you know, damaged by quarrymen. It's true of no matter where you go. I've been to Ireland, to Newgrange, and Mountain mm-hmm. Dow. Oh, yeah. Gigantic, you know, even, how they are. Even made worse here. than in England, yeah. The, the, the yeah, damage. and you see. 
And when I was there, when my dad, I said, why does that one look like a crater in it? Well, during the potato family, put potato famine, they put people to work building roads and mm-hmm. they started destroying that structure, using it for roadbed. I'm like, oh my God, you know, what a shame, you know? It's the yeah. same thing at our site though. And that's what the quarry activity, but there is an ancient quarrying that took place at our site. As I mentioned, where they were lifting up the multi-ton stones off the bedrock and mm-hmm. they were shaping them using that technique called percussion flake. That's a, that's a stone age quarrying. And then we have the 19th century quarrying, two different quarrying eras going on at the site. Yeah, because uh, Andrew Collins and Greg Little both mentioned that uh, there was evidence of, of drilling, as stone drilling that could date even back to these Denisovans, you know, like uh, at least uh, 40,000 to some 300,000 years ago, uh, because they did have that kind of process going on long before anybody ever credited uh, drilling. You know, the, the same technologies as the stone flaking made these drills, these ancient drills, you know, so that would explain it. Yeah. Technically speaking, you've probably had more damage by fire in the days of Patty at the Patty House than you have by stone quarrying, probably. Yeah, the, yeah, the quarrymen, I think, the well, the estimate, I think, is a, one passage said they were there three, three uh, years in a row taking pot load after pot load of rock. But it probably was done seasonably, you know, and we can kind of figure out where they started on the site, on the south side of the main site, and they worked towards the north. And they stopped at a chamber called the East-West Chamber. And the East-West Chamber looks like one I saw in Karnak called the galley or gallery graves. And they're always facing true east east and west out of true north, just like our structure. And they go from 20 to 60 feet in length, and they're in Ireland, Northwest Ireland, which I didn't get to, but I've been in Ireland. They're also in the Netherlands. So in, like in Holland, they call them the giant's bed. It's uh, called, uh, what do they call it? Hundenvin, I think it is. It means the giant's bed. And one of our, one of the authors who's been on TV too, he's a friend of Scott Walters. And he was just there this summer. And he was uh, sending me some message, you know, message by messenger. Or you're sending out some Facebook and I send him by messenger. Hey, what's the orientation of that structure? He goes, it's true east and west. And I said, yeah, it's just like our structure. They look the same. The, uh-huh. You know, the, the length's the same, the height. You know, the, they have orthostats, which are big stones that are stood up vertically or mm-hmm. boulders. And our structure looks just like that. The one next to our east-west chamber is called the V-Hut. It faces southwest, and it looks like the wedge tombs of Ireland. And the wedge tombs of Ireland, they do vary a little bit. But the shape's sort of like a V or a wedge, sometimes a flat wall. And my dad and I saw some over there, and they always face southwest, just like our chamber. The size, the shape, and the orientation on both sides of the ocean. And we have other structures at our site are the same way. You know, the size, shape, and orientation are the same. On yeah. 2,500 miles away, the same kind of... They're in Spain, too, by the way, the same kind of structure in Spain. Right, yeah. So, and, yeah, yeah. And back to Greg and Andrew again, who could, you know, <laughs> think of giants, and that could tie into some of the same civilizations that you mentioned, uh, potentially tie into uh, the date that this America Stonehenge was thought to, about 2000 B.C., there were even giants back then, you know, and throughout but, Native yeah. American cultures here, too. Just saying. I know Timmy yeah, has some the, questions for you, so I'm, I'm going to show okay, up. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Timmy! Um, look, is there any kind of research that's ongoing at the site? Yeah, it has been going on since 1937, and we're doing a, kind of a study to find out where, if uh, there are habitat you know, areas of the site, because we think they built out of hide wood or bark their homes. We did find a wigwam site 
uh, down near the parking lot back in the early 90s and two fire pits dated 1,700 years old and 2,000 years old. On the west side of the property, there's a glacial cliff shelter. It's really beautiful. It overlooks a a river called the Spicket River, which is a tributary of the Merrimack River that comes within five miles of our site. And that's one of the biggest, not the biggest, but one of the bigger rivers in New England. It's a Merrimack River. So its tributary comes up by our western part of our site. The glacial cliff shelter, the pottery there, it was found in the 1950s uh, by style. They call it stylistic dating, dated wow. to about 2,000 to 2,500 years old. So when we got the wigwam site, all it was was all the post moles, about 30 foot in diameter, really a pretty good sized wigwam. The fire, the fire pits dated 1,700 and 2,000, as I mentioned. So we think that was a winter camp, and the in the glacial cliff shelter, half a mile to the west would be the summer camp and the nice northwesterly breezes would come in. So we do have Native Americans living around the hilltop. Um, which is kind of cool. Uh, and uh, we have found different types of stone tools on the site, hammer stones, rubbing stones, stone scrapers, stone, a beautiful stone hoe, fire starting stones, stone wedges, uh, arrowheads, stone knives, uh, axe, celts. People go, you haven't found any, you have, I've heard this say, they never found any artifacts. I'm like, the whole site's an artifact. And we have both 1700s all the way up to present day artifacts, but we also have all these stone tools, utensils, and weapons that have been, and jewelry too, that have been found on the site. Stone Age, made out of stone, you know, and uh, that gets dismissed often, you know. So yes, we have found, but the site I think was a religious site, so you wouldn't find as many artifacts as you would at a at a domicile or a habitat site, you know, where people threw their trash, and that's what we're looking for. So our current thing is, and we have actually been looking at this for a number. The person that's doing the research has been with us for 30 years. She was a president of the New Hampshire Archaeological Society. So somebody's, you know, with good reputation. She knows all the archaeologists in New Hampshire and pretty much all around New England. And she's had to twist a few of their ears to have some of these guys come up because, again, mainstream thinks our site is, you know, irrelevant. It's uh, something that the Paddies must have built, you know, (laughs) something recent. She's kind of changed some of their minds a little bit to open their eyes up a little bit and say, look, I think there's an ancient culture of stone builders, not only at America Stonehenge, but across the Northeast that has been under the radar, ignored, uh, ridiculed by mainstream. And some of these features are being found way out West. Mm-hmm. So we may have an ancient past in America again, that's, you know, not being talked about kind of like a hidden past, if you will. Is there, is there similarities to your site and others in, in North America? You think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are, yeah. I mean, I mentioned like the ser- we mentioned the serpent walls. Now those serpent walls, what is a serpent wall? It's a wall that looks like a serpent or a snake, and it has a head. And the head can be either a stacked head; it's a higher than the rest of the wall. It can be a glacial boulder that's actually shaped like the head of a serpent, if you will, just by natural, you know, uh, just a natural thing, you know. Or it can be actually triangular or diamond shaped. They so they they're in like three or four different shapes, but the body it can be linear, so straight. Some of the linear bodies actually have a bulge about halfway down, and then it will go to a tail, and the tail will be kind of a pointed tail on these, so the wall will narrow down to a tail. The ones in North Stonington range from 30 feet up to 300 feet in length. Uh, some are curved, some are rectilinear, where the, uh, the head's 90 degrees or the tail's bent 90 degrees, or they're, you know, or they're just plain straight, but they will undulate up and down, you know, vertically, mm-hmm. or, the, or the body will undulate back and forth. And some of them actually have stones on them that look like scales. You know, a snow, snake, uh, change, you know, loses, changes its skin, you know, each year. Uh, it looks like that. And 
hours at our site, they vary from about 30 feet. And that's the one I, the first one I found in the spring of 2016. And I showed it to uh, Scott Walters. He had a big entourage coming through. I said, I think I found a serpent, but I don't know of any other serpents anywhere. I, I can't relate it to anything, but it looks like a snake to me. It's got a head. It's got a body that tapers down to like a flat tail. Mm-hmm. And I showed him that one, and I had found uh, two more in that spring of 2016. So I showed him the next two. One of them is a beautiful, looks like a big S, a gigantic S-shaped serpent with a triangular head. And they're, they're looking at it, and they're like, this is pretty cool. In the fall of 2016, I went to a uh, meeting in Groton, Connecticut. It was the New England Antiquities Research Association. It was a group my dad started in 64, and they're still going strong. Some of their members have had their own TV shows now. And uh, one of the gentlemen there was from North Stonington, Connecticut, and he had his books there. And I'm looking at the book, 8,000 features, 240 photographs, all of one town, and 400 serpent walls. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's what I got at my place. I was shocked, you know. And I'm looking at some of the pictures going, that's exactly what we got. Well, when he spoke, he mentioned Rhode Island has them, and they usually curve. The Mm. ones in North Stonington generally are straight, you know, linear. And then he said there's others, and they're finding them in the Hudson Valley all the way out to Monticello. Uh, New York, right near the Woodstock, 1969 mm-hmm. Woodstock Festival area. Uh, after that, I realized that a 1989 book called Manitou by two gentlemen researchers talked about serpentine walls in Vermont. I'm like, I had read that book twice and I never picked that out of the book. You know, I just, I wouldn't pay attention to it. I couldn't relate. <laughs> but they're finding these same walls. And so when after that guy spoke at the meeting for one hour by Skype, a lady from Colorado with her two male colleagues spoke for one hour. The same type of stone structures, cairns, which are piles of rocks, cairns with a little chamber inside of them. Cairns are just piles of rock. Uh, We don't know the purpose. Sometimes they're trail markers in modern times. Mm -hmm. They're a worldwide thing. They're on the Appalachian Mountain Trail. But these seem to be ancient cairns, you know, piles of beautifully stacked rocks. Um, And in Colorado, they look like the New England ones, you know, like a single cairn, multiple cairns. And cons with little chambers. And then she gets into uh, her serpentine walls, and one of them looks just like one. I think the fourth one I found, it looked just like that. And my wife and I kind of sat up and go, looked at it. And I wish I could have spoke to her in person. She was on Skype, so, you know, we couldn't really, I, you know, talk to her. But I wanted to show her my, my serpents, you know. Mm-hmm. So she has the same thing, including walls out there shaped like the letter D as in Delta. We have one at our site. North Stonington has several of them. Wow. And she has the same shape walls in Colorado. So there's a lot of repeating things. And then after that, I found out Alabama has rattlesnake walls and cairns and standing stones. Their snakes out in Alabama are called rattlesnake walls. So hmm. we are finding similar things across the landscape. Yeah. I've, I've been to Manitou. Hmm. My brother was stationed at, uh, in, in Colorado Springs. And, and you, you want to Talk about an interesting, high-energy uh, town. Manitou is, is incredible. It's just, just, oh, it's yeah. It's a neat place to is be. It, was it called Manitou, was it? Manitou? Manitou, Colorado, yeah, just outside of um, uh, Fountain, Colorado, near Colorado Springs. Oh. It's, it's right at the base of oh. uh, Pikes Peak, actually. It's an interesting Weird. place. Yeah, we were close to that area two years ago. We went to Denver, and then we were just in the Four Corners. We were south of there, you know, but not too. We were down in Mesa Verde. We're a little ways from there. But the name of the book was Manitou. And is that the name of the town, Manitou? That's the name of the town, yes. Wow, because that's the name of that book, you know, from 1989. It's kind of a a classic book now by James Maver Jr. and uh, Byron Dix, you know, they... That book still brought up all, and the name of it was Manitou. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, hmm. it's 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 like I said, it's a neat place. There's a lot of 
good energy there. I, I loved it when I was there visiting. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, it, it, these places the lady talked are kind of more like uh, eastern part of Colorado, where it's flat as a pancake. Mm-hmm. You know. So it's amazing when you get to Denver, one side's rocky mountains, the other <laughs> side's just flat as any, and that's where these structures are in the flat part, I guess. That's cool. And Gardner of yeah. the Gods is another interesting place. Like, there's a lot of Native American history there as well. Oh, and yeah. It's, it's yeah. been well preserved. Yeah. See, Timmy's well, been to Manitou, I've been to Malta. Of course, that's <laughs> that's just south of Saratoga. It's in New York State, so just not the interesting Malta, but I've been to the uh, just saying. Just trying to Amen. fit in here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, wanna, I hope you get some postcards. <laughs> yeah, right. I hope so, too. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah right. But there are sites in New York, though. I mean, that's probably, you know, they have the most okay. out there, you know, of chambers and stuff. Very interesting stuff in that area, you know, so. When, when you, you mentioned you talked to Scott Walter and, and you know, Again, we like to watch that show. Mm-hmm. Did did he did he have any opinions as to you know the um, the, the the carbon dated uh, age range of this place, uh, two thousand BC or so? Did he have I any? Yeah, uh, I think yeah. If you saw our show, he was he still is interested. I was talking to him last week. He's going to be in the area around the solstice, and he's going to wow. stop by one of the days to say hi to us. He hasn't been up for about a year and a half or so, but he's. The show came out in 2013. He mm-hmm. actually came over 10 years ago and visited with his family, and then he liked the place so much. He goes, he says it's one of his favorite sites because he traveled wow. the world, but he still thinks it's one of his favorite sites. And, you know, uh, he likes Newport Tower down in Rhode Island and, you know, and the Narragansett Stone and, and all the medieval Templar stuff. But he, he does enjoy our site very much, you know, so we're looking forward to his visit. And his show, I think, is going to continue on Science Channel. It's going to move from travel to science so. now. I yeah. Think. I hope so. Uh, you, know, I, you know, I like that yeah. show. It, it, it is, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, it's completely interesting. <laughs> and, and you yeah. know, it, yeah. it's always good to have people that make stones and rocks interesting. Yeah. Um, Definitely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we had somebody here not too long ago, a friend of Greg Little's, actually. Her name is Maureen Clements, mm-hmm. and she worked with, uh, she actually uh, built some pyramids uh, based on this research that she just kind of came across with regard to how do you move these heavy stones and monoliths, you know, the, the monolith stones or the stones used to build the pyramids uh, like uh, Giza, for example. And she found that wind was the answer, you know. And if you, if you look back at the Egyptian hieroglyphics, all these tools, you know, the, the picture of Horus, you know, has that that uh, one eye or Ra who has this big sun disc over his head. Now, actually, closer to uh, instruments they use for wind. You know, if you're yeah. halfway across a pyramid from somebody, they use like these mirrors or things that could refract the light of the sun to send long distance signals to somebody like okay, we yeah. need your attention over here, or we need you to put this stone over here. But they attach these kites, if you will, using linen and papyrus, you know, in the ancient time, to take the, the because Egypt is a really windy place, you know, but uh, even with a nine mile an hour wind, she says, you could take a kite and it'll do all the work for you. You know, the, the thing you have to watch out for is if you're holding on to the kite, you could lose your fingers. 
So, you know, they they had to build these tools, which looked remarkably like that scepter that Horace and Ra have in their hands, you know. It's this thing where you could use to grab onto the rope that is attached between these huge stones or rocks and the kite that they're using, or two kites sometimes. And the wind does all the work. You know, they've lifted up these 2,000-ton monoliths in less than a minute. You know, by by using these things, and just thought that was an interesting tidbit to throw in <laughs> case yeah. you know well, you ever want to move a monolith again or something. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if they've tested that. You know, has she had a YouTube oh, video she has, or TV? Yeah. She has. I, okay, yeah, that'd be yeah. Cool to see that, yeah, yeah. yeah there, there's, that's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was really fascinating mm-hmm. stuff, and yeah, I I thought it might. Uh, resonate with you, you know, because you're around all these heavy stones all the time, you know, and it just seemed like, well, geez, that sounds so plain. (laughs) People have all these theories, you know, extraterrestrials did it because humans were too stupid to do it, you know, or or all this, you know, it has to be, you know, some sort of uh, magnetic uh, anomaly, you know, geomagnetic anomaly. Now it's wind, you know. And that yeah, makes sense I mean, because it's boring when you think about it, you know. And, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not, yeah, not exotic or something. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's interesting, though. I'd like to see that. Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, yeah. some of our stones weigh, you know, it's about 163 pounds per cubic foot, so we can estimate the weights of some of these slabs, you know. And the biggest one is inside the Oracle Chamber. It's actually a, a boulder that weighs about 50 tons that they must have moved and then they built part of the chamber and used it kind of like an anchor stone, you know, but a lot of the roof slabs weigh, you know, two, three, four, one of them uh, near the Oracle chamber, but not on the Oracle chamber next to it is a two story building. And it's kind of roof uh, for the first story weighs about 14 tons, but they only moved it about 15 feet, but still, you know, 28,000 pound stone or whatever moving I mean, we move stones that only weigh a couple hundred pounds, and it's, like, quite dangerous, you know, and uh, pretty hard to do, you know, when you're trying to do it with levers, you know, like, you know, uh, pry bars and stuff like that. It's it's really tough, you know. Oh, yeah. But yeah. a 14-ton stone like that, it, it's, it can be very, very dangerous for the people doing it, you know. I mean, oh, a sure. slip or if you're using rope, you can lose hands, fingers, uh, toes, whatever, you know. It's, yeah. it's pretty pretty tough, you know. I mean, so the, it is the, a mystery to us. Right. <laughs> even even though... The most current estimation had like a hundred thousand Egyptians, you know, moving these big mm. rocks or carrying them, hundreds of thousands, and put, putting them on these logs or some sort of other wheel type of things to get them from a quarry to the site of the construction of these pyramids. But no, she she did it with wind. She proved it. She's building them in in Mexico, building pyramids with these. You know, oh. I mean, really, really heavy stones and stuff, and stacking them and getting them moved. You know, with with huh. pillars and kites, and and that's it. You know, fascinating stuff. stuff. Yeah, like to see, yeah, yeah, I'd yeah. Like to see that. Yeah, yeah we yeah. we got about uh, eight minutes left. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention, uh, Dennis? Before we go. Yeah, where can we find more about the site? And how can we get to beautiful how Salem, New Hampshire, yeah. America, Stonehenge? Yeah. Well, we're open every day of the year except Christmas and Thanksgiving, and we're uh, open from 9 to 5. We have a website, StonehengeUSA.com, and there's a uh, email and a phone number in there. And we're also on Facebook and Instagram. Um, we also have a free app download, and it's under America's Stonehenge under your Google Play Store. 
uh, for I guess it's an you know Android or you know Apple phone, but you can actually do a whole tour of our site using that app, and you wow. can and you can use it at our site walking around, but you can use it in your lazy you know your lazy boy chair or whatever at home. You can actually do a complete tour of our site, you know, and it's it's pretty cool. It talks to you. It has pictures and text. So it's something that we started last year, and uh, the national parks are starting to do it. Although the four parks we just visited are out in the boonies in the four corners, so they didn't have that, you know, uh, cell phone didn't even really work out there half the time. But um, it's something that's kind of cool, and I think it's like the latest, you know, technology. I think people really enjoy it. And again, some people look at it before they come, and they get kind of, you know, information about the site. They learn about it, and then they come, and then they take the tour, and it's already familiar to them. Or you can just come in and do it, you know, right there, and it takes you around the complete tour of the uh, the whole facility, basically. And we have a visitor center. We have a 10-minute video inside the in the theater, and it's a nice orientation film. We have alpacas there. People go, why do you have those? Because actually, their ancestors are part of the North American camel family, and their ancestors were here for 45 million years. Uh-huh. So these these guys are, you know, been domesticated in South America for you know thousands of years, but their ancestral home is actually here in North America. And, you know, we do talk about some of the pyramids. Uh, the United States had maybe a million mounds at one time. You know, we had most mounds of anywhere in the world, you know. So we get into that discussion a lot, too. And on the West Coast is like the geoglyphs in Blythe. There's two or three hundred. They look like the NASCAR lines in Peru. And people never talk about them either, which is a shame. So we cover the whole North American continent in our discussion when people come and visit us, you know. That's awesome. Well, keeping in mind both that this is like one of the coolest places in the entire world to go visit in beautiful Salem, New Hampshire, and that, you know, you're supposed to be retired and now you're working seven days a week. Uh, when there's a snowstorm in in the Salem, New Hampshire area, does that really impend upon the tour at all? And to uh, only we got to go pretty soon. Yeah, snowshoeing. <laughs> you can tour the site. <laughs> we do have snowshoes there. I want to let the listeners know, uh, Tuesday the 19th, we have Greg Little coming back with us. Um, Thursday the 21st, Robert Miles will join us on, on a show. And the 26th of November, uh, Psychic Chris Garcia will join us on the Supernatural Realm. Chippy, you got awesome. anything on for closing? Yeah, I thought we had... I must be looking like my time is way, way off. Yeah, we got four minutes. Like four minutes left. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, not really. Uh, Just that, you know, Supernatural Realm, uh, 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern every Tuesday and Thursday on late night in the Midlands.com, the great WCETFM, and Saturdays now, uh, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern, uh, 3 to 5 Central on United Public Radio at UPRNTalkRadio.com. So Supernatural Realm really can be heard three times a week now. Uh, and that's kind of cool. And uh, shameless self-promotion here for my show, Kindness Beyond the Veil, where you take a kinder look at the paranormal, supernatural, extraterrestrial, metaphysical, alternative healing realms. Every Monday uh, from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 to 3 p.m. Central at United Public Radio Network, UPRNTalkRadio.com, new live show Kindness Beyond the Veil, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern every Monday. And then on the great WCETFM at latenightinthemidlands.com, uh, the 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern show, Kindness Beyond the Veil, that live version there, which has been established for a couple of years. So, you know, so two live shows on Monday, plus here with Timmy, the great Tim Raxbury, uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays, 7 to 9 p.m. 
uh, and uh, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern, uh, 3 to 5 Central on United Public Radio, UPR and TalkRadio.com. Who's your guest for KBTV? Uh, uh, right now, nobody. My my uh, my guest uh, has a thing, so backed out. If I find somebody, I'll let you know. But you know, or you can uh, tune in two to four p.m. <laughs> to find out for UPRN. Uh, for WCTFM, the seven to nine p.m. show, we have paranormalist Matt Haas, who will be on an episode of Paranormal Survivor next week. So we're promoting that. And uh, Housewives of New Jersey medium. Uh, April Triska uh, Brousseau, uh, she'll be talking about, well, as a medium, you can only imagine. So we got the best of both worlds, paranormal and mediumistic, uh, Monday for the 7 to 9 p.m. Central, Matt Haas and April Trisso Brousseau. Uh, and, pretty cool. Thanks. And be sure to check out KBTV and Supernatural Realm Radio on Facebook. Check out our Facebook pages as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the only good thing on Facebook, unless there's something about America Stonehenge on there. <laughs> <laughs> we got to go. We got to close it out and give it to Michael for late night All right. in the middle. Awesome. The great Michael Vera. Right. Yes, please subscribe or donate to this network. We can certainly use the help and to keep great shows like Supernatural Realm and Late Night in the Midlands, Kindness Beyond the Veil going. Uh, so check that out. Tim. Yeah, Dennis, we'll have to have you back at some point. It's, it's been a fast two hours. Uh, if you want to listen in on Tuesday when we have Greg Little, or if you want to call in during the second half of the show, you're you're more than welcome to do that as well. So thank yeah, you so much for coming you. on. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, uh, thank you both. You were wonderful. I really enjoyed it. Now uh, I'm gonna. What time was that on Tuesday? Uh, seven and nine on Tuesday. Same Perfect. Time. Oh, same time. Okay. Thank yep. you. I will do that. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Thank you. You've been awesome. Thank Great you. Dennis Stone, oh, America's you. Stonehenge, StonehengeUSA.com. Check it out. And a Google Play app. America's Stonehenge. Tell Good me. night, everybody. Listening to WCT.FM talk radio like no other. God, I love the station.